everyone, and welcome back to the second episode of Can You Hear Us? We're delighted to have you back in our small corner of the internet where we can talk about issues that mean the most to us as women and femme of color. Before we start, we'd like to thank the LSE's Department of International Development for their support in hosting this space. My name is Monica, my preferred pronouns are she, her, and I identify as mixed. And I'm one of your lovely co-hosts for today. And my name is Madeira, pronouns are she, her, I'm indigenous and black American, and I am also one of your lovely co-hosts today. So to continue this month's theme of sense of place, we would like to talk about an aspect of finding belonging that we believe is not spoken about enough in the realm of people of color, colorism. Once again, we want to acknowledge that we do not represent all women or femmes of color, that we can only speak from our experiences and perspectives, but we strive to include all women femmes of color in our conversations. So without further ado, Monica, why don't you start us off? Thanks, Madeira. So first coined by the prolific Black American novelist Alice Walker, colorism is defined as the prejudice or preferential treatment of same race people based solely on their color. Colorism is a global issue. It is a systemic form of oppression that can affect all aspects of life for dark-skinned people. For some cultures, it is a representation of caste. For others, colorism is a product of colonization and slavery. Yeah, and colorism manifests in different contexts, whether it be entertainment, beauty standards, the world of dating, and even in the workplace. It is also important to recognize the way in which colorism manifests itself in causing harm to the lives of dark-skinned people who also have intersectional discriminations that make them more emotionally, physically, socioeconomically vulnerable to its consequences. So we're talking about dark-skinned people with disabilities, plus-sized dark-skinned people, as we see in Sabrina Strings, Fearing of the Black Body, dark-skinned people who are poor, which I might add is a huge topic that we should discuss more so in the realm of international development. Um, and even for dark-skinned Black women, especially. And uh, the example that I come across, and it's been in the news, is Vanessa Bell Calloway, who was a uh, actress that was in one of the famous Eddie Murphy films that came out in the 80s or 90s. I can't remember. I'm too young. Um, but Coming to America, <laughs> I grew up with it. I love this movie. Um, and recently, they're getting ready to come out with a new series or a new sequel. Um, and they were interviewing her and she actually disclosed that she was in the running for the leading lady, Lisa. And uh, they asked her why she thought that she didn't get the role. And she literally said that they wanted a light skinned girl. So I think this is pretty relevant to right now. And so we, meaning the Can You Hear Us team, believe it is important to tackle colorism, not only in the realm of how it embeds itself in development practice, but more vividly in the professional and per personal arenas we find ourselves navigating as we try and find our place, so to speak, in our current academic journeys at the LSE and beyond. With Can You Hear Us also being an extension of WOCO, we understand how important it is to recognize how colorism might operate in a group made to empower different identities who have similar experiences as women of or femme of color. While some of us benefit or directly implicate it unconsciously and perpetuate it, others in our group might be harmed by it. Today, we hope to have a dialogue that speaks to the need for colorism to enter spaces of solidarity, especially in groups like WOCO. And we are incredibly honored to have two special guests joining us from the U.S. today who tackle this dynamic on a regular basis. So we have Beatrice Cantata and Natalie Petit. Natalie and Beatrice, welcome to Can You Hear Us? Thanks for joining us today. Um, we are so excited to have you here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Before we begin, do you mind just introducing yourselves a little? Sure. So I am Natalie Petit. I, my pronouns are she, hers. I identify as Black, and I am happy to be here today. Hi, I'm Beatrice Cantata. My pronouns are she, hers. I identify as Filipino. Thank you so much for being here, like we said. And our first question is very simple. It is just, how do you both know each other? I will say I'm very lucky to have Natalie as an amazing colleague. Just so you know, she recent, re recently received a Martin Luther King Staff Award for her achievement in advancing diversity, equity, inclusion. Big stuff, really big stuff. Um, and she is someone I admire. She's one of the co-leads for um, one of the employee resource groups um, at MIT where we both work. So you are in great hands. She is just a visionary leader and I'm just so happy to have her as a colleague. Oh, that's amazing. Congratulations. 
Thank you. I would say Beatrice is a powerhouse in leading the change. Um, and if anything, making the charge to make sure that BIPOC folks, which is Black, Indigenous, people of color, like each one is represented in every capacity. So making sure each one has a voice. And so if anything, Beatrice's office, um, the ICEO, um, is leading the charge in that. And so if anything, you know, behind every great man, there's a powerful woman and that is Beatrice right there. So. And I also work with her in the capacity of ERGs, um, employee resource groups. Um, and I've always been admired of her work and what she's doing to make sure that we elevate diversity and inclusion in many ways. And I tell you, she pushes me in such a positive way to really think, I mean, look beyond my blind spots. Like I, you know, even as a woman of color, we need each other to hold each other accountable. So I'm so appreciative of that. Thank you, Natalie. Likewise, likewise. Wow, that was such a nice introduction. <laughs> Amazing. And congrats to you both for all the achievements you do every day yeah. for all of us, really. So judging from what we have learned about you, it seems like community building is a big part of your work, both professionally and personally. And um, could you tell us a bit more about how you got started in this work and why, most importantly? I'll say that I recently was watching the movie Judas and the Black Messiah, and one of the most powerful lines from the uh, movie was, where there is people, there is power. And, you know, I, I define that by the feeling of fellowship. So we're all gathering together because we have a common goal, interest, um, feeling of, you know, belonging in a sense. And that's something innate in me where I always find I'm always wanting to connect people together. Um, and it's, it's natural. It's I could do it in my sleep, mathematical equations of figuring out how to get people together. Um, life is not meant to be lived alone. It's meant to be together. Um, it's meant to be with each other. Um, and I'm reminded of my Angelou's quote, um, just to paraphrase it, is that people will never forget how you made them feel. And that's what community does, is that I am reminded each and every day that I belong to something or someone's or I'm a an association with a group of people that love me, appreciate me, and also want to see the better in me. Um, so making people feel connected is something that I innately love to do. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's so ancestral too, mm -hmm. it seems like it, you know, yes. it really gets down to the roots of who we are as people as wanting to be together. And what about you, Beatrice? Um, I have to be honest, I stumbled across diversity, equity, inclusion. And let me tell you why. I was born and raised in the Philippines. So my understanding of U U.S. racial history, very limited, limited to what I saw on TV growing up. So I don't want to tell you my age, but just so you know, we did not have the Internet back then. We were only watching TV on VHS, Betamax, Laserdisc. Yes, I'm telling you my age now. <laughs> So that was my understanding of um, racism. So very, again, very limited and very Hollywood-esque. Let's just yeah. be honest. Um, and I had the opportunity to come to the U.S. to get my um, undergraduate degree. And that's when things started to shift for me. All of a sudden, I started realizing I was another, the other, sorry. Right. Um, I thought I was, you know, a proud Filipino. But all of a sudden, I'm now put in the category of Asian which for me growing up was a continent, not necessarily a race. So talk about um, cognitive dissonance for me. Yeah. And um, I started realizing also how um, I related to white people because for the longest time I was afraid of white people, afraid of them and intimidated. Why? I go back again to what had TV shown me growing up that white people were superior and we, including myself, were less than them, right? Um, and I'm going to touch a little bit of the colorism in terms of beauty was always blonde hair, blue eyes. But I wasn't blonde hair, blue eyes. So I never saw myself, I that's the standard, I can't meet it. Um, so that was my personal understanding and really grappling with who I was. But my background is human resources. So how did I stumble across diversity, equity, and inclusion? Um, I had to give... Um, gratitude and appreciation to this white woman who at that time in 2009 2010 was retiring and she was working in the diversity office but at that time it was called compliance so again how things have shifted um through the years and she said beatrice i know your background's in human resources but 
you know, I'm retiring. And when I retire, there's a position that's going to open up. And I think you'll be great at it. And I'm like, what's this position? She's like, think about it as recruiting. Again, remember, my background was human resources and recruiting. Mm -hmm. Instead of interviewing candidates, you're going to oversee the process. You're going to help faculty um, uh, go through the process of recruiting their colleagues, but making sure that we're casting a wide net and we're giving everyone an equal chance. So that's how she described it to me. And I was thinking to myself, that sounds pretty cool. That makes yeah. sense, right? Giving everyone an equal chance so that they can belong, they can be part of a community. Yeah. That I'm, I'm, I'll be behind that. So that's when I started understanding the work, diversity, and inclusion back in 2010. But I already had um, experiences of it personally in terms of what it feels to be the other and what it feels to belong. Mm -hmm. So that's how, sorry, long-winded answer, but I just oh. wanted to share. I don't think I would ever have been in this field had I not um, come to the U.S. for my undergraduate and graduate studies and had I not met that woman, that white woman who was just about to retire and saw something in me yeah. um, and opened that, uh, provided that possibility for me. And allowed you, allowed to take on a, a beautiful role and a beautiful concept that, you know, I think that needs to be shared more widely. So. Uh, yes. No, it's incredible. And it ties in really well with our next question as well, which is essentially how does colorism present itself in your work every day or in or at the aggregate level? And do the discussions about colorism come up at all? As well as why do you think these discussions of colorism are so difficult to acknowledge in a professional setting? To have your question, so to Beatrice's point, so I am Haitian. I was born here in the U.S., I've gone back to Haiti a few times, and it's interesting to see, as someone from the Caribbean, how colorism can span into our work. I represent, I'm a co-lead of our African Black American Caribbean Employee Resource Group, which is ABAC ERG. Um, but it, it's really at the root of it, I think of how education in itself can be used as a tool for good and bad and how the classroom or even our workforce can be a place to address white supremacy. But our institute is predominantly white. So what is the one that, what's the agenda that's always portrayed in all of our classrooms yeah. and our boardrooms? White supremacy, <laughs> um, even if we want to hide from it. So if you're looking at, you know, white dominance and black impurity, it's everywhere. It, it reeks within our classrooms and how our students feel. It's our staff that specifically our black staff that are in the support roles mainly. They're not seen at the higher level. They're not seen at the professor level either too. So like there, there's pretty much, if you've gone through all of your schooling in the United States, and I could speak for someone who was born and raised in the Boston area, I can count how many black professors I've had or teachers I've had in my hands. And it is not up to 10. And yeah. so you can imagine that is spans into when I go to work for a predominantly white institution, the conversations are not about me. It's not about my inclusion. It's not about my equity. It's not about the, 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 the need for my representation at the table. So colorism in itself uh, as a conversation is interesting to me because colorism can be seen as a structure that can divide and conquer us. It, for example, if you have DEI work, which is diversity, equity, inclusion, um, and if you leave it in the hands of white people and that one token black person, you know, the next hire will be a light skinned person. It will be someone that represents them and not me, who I would identify as a darker skinned woman. Thus, you know, colorism can speak to how we promote our staff, how we hire our staff, how we treat our staff. If I'm a darker skin complexion, you immediately think I'm aggressive. If I speak up and say that's not fair, you think I'm now attacking you. And you use those words. You use those those words you would describe like something that is attacking you for real, for real. And I'm not, I'm just simply stating my opinion. And so that's where, when it comes to our work and what we do, it stems in the fact that we don't see our voices heard in many different levels of the Institute because of not just being black, but also to the, the complexion of our skin as well. Right. And, it, and if you do hear them, it's, it's in close proximity to whiteness. It has to be as close as possible without without being white. Like, you know, it has just to be a little bit less. And I, I think that that's something that a lot of 
lighter skinned people to try to ignore it in a way that they don't want to talk about it because they think of the I it's that whole idea of like we're all black too like yeah it doesn't matter we're all, we might all be black but every each black person has a different experience of being black or exactly. being black. and if that's not represented in the workforce then what can you like how how are you supposed to proceed to that point too it's even colorism or articulation like oh you speak so well like that's a whole different topic for another day but it's like yeah. i'm educated y'all but yeah. even if i wasn't educated not every black person is the same so right, yeah right. i have to say which i'm i shouldn't be surprised but i'm a bit surprised that colorism is not a topic that comes up at all i think it comes up when we start talking about intersectionality in different mm. conversations but we are so, when I say we as a society, I feel like we are still in the infant stages of understanding our racial identity that to go there without knowing ourselves first. And when I say we, that meaning me as an Asian woman or folks as white people, if we are not even getting the basics, how can we understand colorism? Like, I feel like that has been sort of like my observation that yes, I'm aware of it, I've experienced it, but we don't talk about it because we don't have a shared understanding of what it means to have a racial identity. See, white people, when they think of racial identity, I'm not saying all, they think, oh, black, person of color, indigenous people, but actually being white is also a racial identity. And what is what does that mean to you as a white person? Like we're, it's always looking outward White, uh, white folks are always looking outward, like the others, the other groups, that's, that's, that's racial identity. No, it's a we thing. We all have it. And until we're able to um, acknowledge and own that, how are we able to also know the nuances and the intersectionality of what it means? Because if we think about it, um, like me growing up, I didn't know, I didn't use the word colorism. Growing up, we just said, oh, you're lighter skin, darker skin. Like we grew up this, exactly like having like a caste system where if you're darker skin, you're perceived to be of lower socioeconomic status. So everyone is trying their best to whiten their skin, right? It's like taboo, do not go under the sun. And then when I came to the U.S., all of a sudden you have white people wanting to get tanned. So it's messing with my brain. And why is it for them it's okay to get tanned? But for other people of color, mm, it's not good. So that messes with my brain a lot, right? Like, how is it that they can get tan and still be deemed as ooh beautiful olive skin, but then other people? Whoa. Right, right. And I, I feel like I also see it in, in mixed kids, too. As being like a mixed kid, it seems like it's almost fetishized in a way that I can get golden tan and it tan as I want. What you were saying, Nellie, is true. It's like the darker you are, the more masculine you are, you seem, like the more aggressive, the more abrasive you are to have conversations with. And it's, it's a life choice. You know, I growing up, I remember in elementary school, you know, we would talk about, oh, who's pretty, who's not pretty, maybe in, in um, show business, right? In the, our version of Hollywood. And I remember hearing and also saying, oh, she's pretty for a dark-skinned woman. Mm -hmm. Like, why did I have to use for a dark-skinned woman? Why couldn't this woman just be attractive, period? Mm -hmm. And it's so interesting. It just came so natural to our conversations. And sometimes I even, I still hear it when I'm around my, my Filipino circles because that's how we talk. And it just, I cringe. I cringe partly because, gosh, I, I'm guilty because I had done that and I'm being very conscious and like, no, that's not the case anymore. And how ingrained it is in our conversations about what beauty is, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's, I, I, I'm so conscious now about that when, you know, again, in social gatherings, talking about people being attractive, I just say they're attractive, period. Yeah. Mm. Really, and, and period, no, 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 nothing else. I remember, so growing up in Creole, the way to describe a light skin person is clear. Like you say with an accent, but I remember telling my music teacher when I was explaining to my music teacher, like, oh, I'm talking about this X, Y person. They were like, oh, who, who is it? It's like, oh, that clear person over there. She's like, clear, like see-through clear. And I was like, I just think, and that's when I remember like colorism right there is that the better you are to white than you are to dark is that you're more seen like as the, the, the go-to person and that, and we can't even describe each other well as well when we're just like, oh, like in talking with other people too, like 
when you're trying to describe, oh, that lighter skinned person, it's in my head. And when I'm saying it's like, why? Like to reach its point, like, why am I now describing that other Filipino or black person as lighter when I could just simply say their name <laughs> or simply say the, the one with the black hair or the box braids? You know, like, why can't I do it that way versus I have to go based off of are you honeycomb brown or are you brown paper brown? Like, th these are things that like, why? Where did it come from? Because growing up, Jennifer Anderson was the model citizen for everyone to aspire to. Little did I know, and I didn't know what, you know, when white folks said I went to the salon, I was like, you, oh, you got streaks. Like, I thought that was natural. I never knew, like, I never knew, like, in terms of, oh, so that's what you did. And you spent how much? It's, but when I know I go to the salon, I get a, a, a silk press or a box braids or yes. a nice, like, you could see the difference. <laughs> so yeah. you, certain times you just don't if we have this conversation with folks like when we are ready to have these conversations we'll be able to see eye to eye but we're not willing to see eye to eye right now we're not this could be a bit digressing from the topic of colorism itself but just since you talked about this i find it so interesting what is the line between informing and open conversations and cultural appropriation, which we can now see with people appropriating box braids, for example, because it's mm -hmm. such a prime example of the last five years almost in, in streetwear fashion and in lifestyle fashion. So I would say to that, the fetish of not realizing everything is rooted in the Black community. Like I, I everyone assumes like I created it and it's like braids were have been here so long all the way back to like hundreds of years ago and it's you you didn't invent it i think when it comes to appropriation and also informing it's to just do it's where i think what i'm baffled by is how we allow people to be ignorant and let them walk away with it and it could have just been that you said i'm in, i was inspired by Toni Morrison's um, locks and I did my locks like this or just give us the due diligence or if anything credit for what you always steal from us and so when it comes to educating folks it's why do we have to always educate you on the the ignorance that you always seem to get away with and you meaning white people like why is it that I always have to be the one to call it out when I look like the bad person thing that you're now misappropriating our culture. I think of recently when I realized like when you see music, it's jazz, like rock and roll all started in the black community, but we don't get that recognition because it took a white man to, to make a hit off of our music and now it's their music. And, and so I think that's where if you really want to be at the root or an ally or simply just want to understand get back to history and know how to do research. I, I don't have to teach you that. You can unlearn and learn and relearn or watch and rewatch all the things that have happened. There's so much rich history to be going over because I had to I had to learn my history a little bit too. So I'm not going to say like I'm perfect in knowing all of my history. And that's where it's like, why not we, to the, to the point of Madeira said earlier, it's like, why isn't Black culture or Black history or BIPOC history the forefront of um, U.S. history, yeah. when it's really the white man's history that we learn and then we later find out in our own history that we were really oppressed in the world, not just Black people. So these are things like I, it's a, <laughs> a long way to answer yeah. your question, but it really is in the root of we need to stop letting white people get away with their ignorant behavior when really we need to also call out and say who was the first to do it and give that person the appreciation that they deserve. Right. And, you know, and to go off of that, this kind of, these kind of discussions, I think really mean a lot to us and they're incredibly emotional and incredibly personal because they take, you know, such a deep dive into our own sense of identity in order to almost, I mean, what you're saying, teach people in a way to understand what, like how this, 
how these sort of identities, how we choose to push or promote or, you know, not allow other groups or other people by othering them or creating spaces where there is a divide or division. You know, this is emotionally laborious work. And so my question to both of you is also like, how how do you take care of yourselves in doing this? I mean, this is like, this is your nine to five, right? Like this isn't just, you know, part of the rigmarole of daily life. And we, we get we get consumed by this right regularly. And so, yeah, how do you take care of yourself? Do you, do you take baths? Like, you know, I, um, I do a lot of yoga and I do a lot of Zumba dancing. So the yoga piece allows me to sort of, um, shut down the outside world and just gives me the opportunity to stay present. So that calms me down. And then when I think of dancing and Zumba, that allows me to release that pent up frustration, anger, fighting this system that doesn't want to change. I mean, that's the reality that we face. And you're right. It goes beyond nine to five. Like this is something that sometimes I dream about. I carry with me over the weekend because we're talking about people, people not getting the respect that they deserve or their voices are not being heard. And it isn't so much just my personal experience, but my colleagues, when people share with me just the oh, unbelievable disrespect that they receive from their managers and from their colleagues, and that they're continuously not being heard, it weighs on you. It weighs on you. And, you know, I, I feel also responsible because of the role that I am, that I have in, in my employer at MIT to speak up. Like that's something that I cannot take for granted that I feel like that is a privilege that was given to me. And I, I I have that responsibility to make sure I do my job and that I speak for those who can't speak for themselves. So it it is a balancing act. Um, Some days I'm really good about compartmentalizing and other days I'm not, I get emotional. I get tired. I need a break. I feel like, what am I doing? Because I'm just as human as anyone else in this space where we also feel tired, exhausted, and just hurt. Right. I think we saw it on your LinkedIn somewhere. And it said that you describe yourself as a results-oriented leader. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and when you're talking about this programming of not only is it emotionally laborious, but also important. And, and in some ways, some would argue is really hard to kind of uh, measure um, because we're talking about some social issues. Behavior change can take years to actually happen. So I guess our question for you is how do you quantify experiential improvements like equity and inclusivity? Like, and, and, and in the realm of it, like, can we even talk about colorism in this way? So I will tell you, um, since 2020, and um, this is, again, the impact of the global impact of um, COVID-19. So we've now um, started to work from home. Everything is remote. Zoom is like our new best friend, although it's also my new best enemy, depending on how you want to look at it. can go both ways. So, um, and, and also in the United States, with the killing of George Floyd and other Breonna Taylor and other Blacks, um, have really created such social unrest. And at the same time too, it created a lot of energy and appetite to learn more. And so one thing that for me that I've seen a shift is our events that I, that we come up with through our office. You know, we probably have 30, 40, 50 people attend. It shot up to about 120. So talk about doubling, tripling numbers. So for me, that leads me to think the appetite is there. People don't understand what's happening. They know it's wrong. They just don't have the words and they don't know how to address it. So they're attending our events in high numbers, which again, I'm very grateful. And then the other thing too, is we do have evaluation forms just to get a sense, you know, where you, where you are in the organization, are you students, staff, faculty, and we're seeing again, increase in numbers in all aspects. So that's a good thing, right? Right. And then what we try to ask is what, what have you learned from this event? And, you know, hopefully they'll give you sort of tangible information, which is good. But also what I've noticed is what other comments, more, more, more. So all of a sudden there's just like continuous appetite, which again, that's one way to measure it. But for me, what's more important is how are we going to shift culture? So to, to be excited, that can lose momentum quickly, right? 
Right. Because right. after a while, if, if we don't have any more, I'm sorry to say, if we don't have any more unrest, what are people going to be, you know, we're, we're quick to forget. Right. When you, yeah. when's the next, ex, when's the next event or next incident? We, I don't want that. Like for me, if we really want change, this has to change culturally. Like it has to be Im embedded into the organization where we need to continuous, continuously reflect on our identity, reflect on the practices and reflect on the ways we actually exclude people and the ways that we do include. Cause I don't want to be only negative. Like we do good stuff too. So how do we highlight the, the good that we've done and how do we address those, the good that we haven't done? Right. So this is just a continuous process where we have to reflect. We have to see, okay, evaluate, assess. Did we do this right or did we not? And how can we change things? So that one, I don't think that for it to be sustainable, it's going to take a while. Right. Mm -hmm. This is a marathon, not a sprint. So last year, I will say people all of a sudden said, let's do the sprint. sprint. And we're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We will do a race, not a sprint. So let's let's all join together in this marathon. But remember, it's a marathon. So pace yourself. Don't yeah. wait for the next, I don't know, water water station. No, you got to pace yourself. Yeah, you're becoming the accountability partners, mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> you know, to a to an institution <laughs> in a way that, you know, and, and that is multifaceted and multi-leveled. And um, yeah, you're right. Like it, it, it is truly a marathon. I hope that we're hopefully seeing more of it changing. We're not just reacting off of external shocks. I think that that's something that needs to be. I really like the analogy because it's also a sprint is individual and competitive, whereas a marathon is more collective as well, which is the most important thing about these kind of topics is inclusion on all levels for everyone. Whoever wants to learn, it's like it's there, right? We all have to move forward together. You know, to make change, I think. And so I guess, okay, Natalie, so in our last episode, we kind of highlighted the issue of imposter syndrome, um, and especially with women of color having to deal with that in the workplace. And, um, and I think that we're really familiar with it. I know I am. Um, and so I, we read that you are also really into mentorship and creating spaces for mentorship. Um, and so as someone that works in that kind of sphere, what role do you think that shared experience plays in addressing colorism, especially when we're talking about like mentor to mentee um, and how do you navigate that? Um, great question. So before I answer that one, um, what I do to de-stress is nap. Um, oh, napping perfect. is yeah. my ministry. Um, uh, it's literally a hobby ever since. Um, yeah. I, I recently told someone, it just, it just marinates my stress and I can wake up with like a little bit of less of attention, but yeah. napping and also pre-COVID would have been travel or, you know, just learning a little bit more about something new. So oceanography for sure on Netflix, all of the Blue Planet documentaries, gotta watch them definitely for sure. Yeah. Which comes to like, my analogy, which is pretty similar to the marathon sprint, is that let's not wait for another tsunami like George Floyd, um, when we could have just handled DEI work with the riptide. Like when the, the tide is low, and the tide, don't wait for another tsunami because the aftershocks are Brianna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey, the, um, you know, Tr Trayvon Martin. These are the aftershocks because we did not address it the time that we should have addressed it. But to your, <laughs> your question in terms of mentorship, I think of it as the way, like it's the way of disrupting systems of oppression is acknowledging me, a black woman, a dark skinned woman, but we also have to work together to make it happen. So part of mentorship is the mentee and the mentor. Mentees probably do most of the work to get the mentor. Stacey Abrams talks about this in terms of like, you know, everyone wants a mentor, but some people just want to answer to the question. Yeah. <laughs> so you're out here asking for mentors when you could have just gotten your question answered. Thankfully, where I work, I work primarily with students and mm -hmm. my DEI work is in the is all volunteer. It's literally all volunteer wow. with staff. So that became not a nine to five, but a, a 10 to 10 some, yeah. some days, primarily because it is what I'm passionate about is seeing the voices of BIPOC folks be elevated, specifically black folks. And so thankfully my boss who is a white man who 
is uh, a leader in DEI at MIT as well, is okay with me being me, is okay with me being unapologetically me, me having, you know, my little, you know, but did you hear what they said about me? (laughs) So he is okay with me addressing that. And that pours into how I work with students. It pours into how I work with staff because if we're being blunt, I'm not coming in to, you know, I, I remember I had a student come into our office who did not like her natural hair, um, who did not know, because she's used to seeing that she's an international student, but used to seeing the Eurocentric way of living. It was always had to be slim, slim and, you know, the tall blonde hair and all that. And so I literally pulled together a list of 50 people to follow on Instagram, CEOs of all different shades, um, black hair products to follow, um, black positive, and also black hair positive um, places. So I also learned, you know, the difference between 4C, you know, for like all the hair textures as a, as a way to show to her, like there's a whole community out there that is not seen because we don't want them to be seen. But if anything, we also have our, you know, there's a documentary, Good Hair. That's, yeah. So that's another, like, if you think of colorism, like, so is your hair more Eurocentric or is your hair more coarse and nappy? So it's like, that's another, like, how do we address that in the workforce as well? So so me being me and me being a true person is how it pours into my mentorship. So I think of the the idea of imposter syndrome and the idea that it, it really succeeds um, the thought of I only got this opportunity out of luck or I my talent doesn't really um, subside that or my qualifications are pretty lower. It's because you were lucky to get this opportunity. And I reminded of, you know, when I walked through the door, another black man asked me when I started at MIT. So how did you get this job? I was like, I applied. <laughs> and he was like, no, no, no. But like, really, how did you get like, how did they let you in? I'm like, brother come on now like, yeah we can have a whole hot conversation all of us. <laughs> let us know when you have that conversation yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but no and I and I literally was like I had told this to my aunt she's like tell me you told him it was God and I was like yeah I told him it was God but I was like no I really applied and like I didn't know nobody inside and he's like oh okay so you so you just got here and I, it's crazy because a few years later, a, a white professor asked how I got in here. And I was like, oh, I applied. He's like, no, but like, honestly, like how, like, what's your history? And I was just like, so that's where we get those questions. And I'm reminded of a, a very close friend of mine in grad school who says, do you ever ask white people where they went to school? Do you ever ask where their parents went to school? Do you ever ask them these size up questions? No, right? So you have no need to be answering them for white people. Yeah. And I, since then, I was just like, okay, we're going into the places because we are needed in these places. Yeah. Um, and so I'm reminded too, when I do that mentorship to students, I'm reminded of like, you know, how I was and the majority of my students were the only black students in their AP honors classes or, you know, myself, black female only in like the, our management school, or you're looking at when I walk down the hallways and some of our black students the same way too are dismissed. Like you're a ghost. Like they don't see us. Like, yeah. so these are reminders when they come into my office or when they were, we're meeting via zoom now, the zoom world. Um, that you are seen, that you are heard, and that you are left feeling more confident in the way you walked in. Because, you know, I'm, I'm you know, historically when we see dark skin, it's heavily associated with lower class, um, or in a, many societies that dark skin was a sign that you were uneducated. And no, we are still as equal in the eyes of God. We are still as equal in terms of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, Constitution. Um, all men are created equal. I know they weren't talking about us, but still. we are equal to this day. So, you know, so if I see my staff or if I see our students, um, my passage here is that um, (laughs) it's important for us to be included in many places so that we all feel supported. So there's mentorship, yes, there, but there's also the, I see another sister, you know, that image of Kamala Harris and Michelle Obama. Um, I see you, you see me, we gonna make this happen. Um, And the power of black women, if anything, in any place will help elevate so much, but we often tend to forget 
that we are as powerful as we can always be. Yeah, I agree. I feel like I think that people need to really think about how blackness and and acknowledging blackness, acknowledging the differences in blackness and like putting it on a platform is a direct uh, fight against white supremacy it is it, it, and it helps everyone. And I think that that is just such a powerful way to contribute. And even for us, you know, the reason why we created this platform in general was because we felt the need that there need, we needed to shoulder each other up in a way. And that is exactly what you do. Natalie, I have a question for you. So when you get that, um, like, how'd you get here? What would it be like if you just throw that question back at them? How did you get here? And I say this because I think our listeners, they may come across that kind of questioning and I want them to feel empowered, to, yeah. to um, know the different ways or different um, approaches that they can use. Because I feel like depending on who I'm speaking with, I can be snarky and say, no, how did you get here? How about you first, right? I mean, again, depending on who I'm dealing with, right. I may find different ways, but part of me is like, throw it back at them, right? If you're gonna ask me, you answer first, then I'll answer, but yeah. No, it's, it's true. I've even heard that with women and just being women in general, like people asking us inappropriate questions and us returning. I, I don't understand that. Can you explain mm-hmm. it to me? And giving them the right to respond is I think is such a good tool to have. Because I think it's also too where we, I entered 2021 saying I'm going to call out white supremacy. Like I, I'm, I'm, I'm no longer you know, staying quiet. And I think that's where our silence definitely, you know, silence from white people is an answer. Silence from us is our way of calming possibly the storm that might arise. Um, But I would say to, if someone were to ask me that is, um, how is this relevant to the cause at hand? Like, you know, what we're doing right now, does that, does it matter? Even so, that's a microaggression. <laughs> like calling out what you're doing right now is what we're trying to debunk. We're not trying to get to this level. Um, my sister always says that. She's like, so if I answer this question, does it actually matter? <laughs> like you having this information, does it matter to you? Does it make you feel better? Does it? Did you do anything with this information? No. Yeah. Did that give you the value and the respect that you needed to give to me? No. So I, I would I would say to to students even that are even staff that handle those situations that. You have to the you have to start operating in the way of which you want to just now be treated. Like, don't fall victim to white people always asking about your history and your past because they're looking for a sob story. They're looking for the "I'm sorry, wow," but no, you know we are. If anything, our generation right now is possibly doing more than what our parents could have ever dreamed of or our ancestors could have ever dreamed of. We don't have time to explain that, um, but we know that that's the shoulders that we stand on. And that is something that we have to hold to our, our highest standards. And so therefore, if someone were to ask me today, where, where did you grow up, where it's for, how do you speak so well, is that I'm a product of you know kings and queens. I am a product, if you hold that regalness, they're gonna be like, what king and queen? That's the problem, you need to go do your research. <laughs> <laughs> That's not for me to tell you Learn where I came from. <laughs> yeah, okay. I agree. Or even give them a book. Give yeah. them a book of reference. Like go to anti-racism and page, you know, X, Y, and Z. Give them something that they could go back and be like, oh, exactly. Because I've always had to read about you guys. I've always had to yeah. understand you, how to work with you, how to code switch with you. At the end of the day, there's a part where we have to stop doing that so that we can start feeling relieved and free to be our own unapologetic selves. Yeah. Just be mm-hmm. us. Just be us. Oh. So, so far we've been talking more about colorism on a very global level, which is tied to historical to historical events and there's like this dichotomy between Eurocentric values and everyone else. Um, So our last set of questions would be more along the lines of how do you address colorism in groups with diverse identities? And in other words, how do you simultaneously build solidarity between different women of color, um, since we are in affiliation with WOCO, um, while also acknowledging um, everyone's very unique experiences with colorism because it does come in so many different 
shades <laughs> excuse the pun yeah it comes in it's such a wide variety for me i think the starting point is always having a place of trust so i wouldn't necessarily talk about colorism in an event that has over 100 people unless i have developed trust with all 99 people because i'm the 100th um but i think it starts off with having like i see myself feeling in a trust circle with the three of you but having these conversations where you can really be authentic and grapple with it because colorism again it's a difficult topic you know it's in some ways it's easier to talk about racism and i'm not saying that i'm saying it very uh, nonchalantly but when it goes colorism because then it starts talking about me and people within um what is perceived as my group right it's it, it it becomes like ooh so within the same group we're talking about it and yes we may we all may be asian but not really right we have different experiences as asian people so it becomes a little trickier so i think the trust is important to talk about that we all are experiencing this we're not necessarily talking about it enough colorism and let's do it in this space let's let's grapple with it together because in order for us to feel comfortable to talk about it, then we can talk about it with other people but i would again first thing is how do you address it address it uh first of all make sure you build that trust within that space that you're in i think in diverse communities we have to be able to to be this point we have to be able to learn how to talk about race comfortably um we're i could tell say we're not there yet because i'm i'm still reminded like dark skin is not a crime light skin is not a prize and so if we were so quick to solve covid we're so quick to solve how to reopen and get back to normal this was a problem no one knew how to solve but we solved it and so race has always been at the forefront of every situation every zoom meeting every everything that we do race is entailed to that entangled to that but when it comes to colorism like if we're not you know we, if we're not ready for the race conversation colorism will probably be addressed like we need to address like race like a 12 week course like machine learning or even the intro to how to solve covid <laughs> like that's what we need to do with race and one class specifically which is probably a week long class is colorism um and so if we we have to not just run to the implicit bias trainings and that's to solve it for racism and discrimination like colorism itself has to be in a way for our diverse communities to see that be bold and invite uh, an indigenous brother or sister be bold and invite an next um brother or sister be bold and invite a black person to share like uh, all of these things is that we often run to put on our website the five diverse students that we have on our college campuses but why don't we invite them to a conversation to come educate us uh, us meaning the white people before you try to market your diversity how would you learn about your diversity and so i think that's where for us i like i run an infinity group within our management school called so women for women and the table is filled with majority yes white women but there's also a great group of black women there who call me out who tell me natalie did you not realize x y and z did you see that they dominated this way and i'm like oh okay oh you right you know you right and so i'll go back and i'll be like okay i want to make sure everyone is heard and seen um and if we're not operating on the that you know the same way with covid i could do not everyone was heard and seen everyone's perspective yeah. was brought to the table everyone was trying to figure out the best way to stop we need that same energy when it comes to racism we need that same energy when it comes to colorism as well Yeah, I agree. We need to be hype. Honestly, we need to be perpetually hype about this this topic, not only this topic, but what it means for our future generations and what it'll say as us when we become the ancestors to really establish what what it means to be people and to be get together in solidarity. Beautiful thoughts, beautiful things. Natalie Betrees, it has been an amazing discussion with both of you. Thank you so much for joining us here on Can You Hear Us? I think we could pretty much talk for hours, but due to time, we need, we might need to go. But before we go, we like to end on a more of a fun note, um which is us spinning the wheel of questions where we indulge our audience and really ourselves to be completely honest with random information about our guests. Um so I will let Monica take the lead. So I'm going to share my screen and we're going to spin the wheel and whatever it lands on, you both can answer essentially. <laughs> so here we go. 
for this week, the question is, so what are your dream jobs or your dream projects in the future? This is a very it's tough one. <laughs> yeah, I, was like, I was like, this, this is not that easy. <laughs> I love to travel. So when I was younger, I wanted to do like a travel, like you would hire me to go to different um, hotels and I would do a review. What do you call that? Um, or the restaurants, you know, it's a and travel I'd blogger. Yeah. Tra- travel blogger. But then I would be like, the, you know, like they wouldn't know who I am. I would be so inconspicuous and, you know, just sit in and like, yes, I'm checking in. <laughs> and then I would just like, you know, do a review. Like the shoots were nice and silky. But the point is, I love to travel and I love to travel in style. And I figured if that is the best way to do it without having to pay, <laughs> yeah, I'll no. do it. You're my kind of And so I'm jealous of the fact that you're in London and Netherlands. I'm like, oh, I want to be there with you now. Yeah. Maybe we can have a meetup after all of this. Yeah. Fly us out. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Natalie, what's your answer? Growing up, I always wanted to be like the FBI director. I have my, my degrees are in criminal justice. And then eventually I was like, "Eh, maybe not. So I would say, I was always inspired by undercover boss. So like just being that boss that's stacking, you know, the shelves with you or doing the routes with you, not knowing that I'm your boss uh, or the, the CEO. So I guess a dream job would be like working as a UN ambassador because it incorporates the travel. <laughs> because I, I like Beatrice, I, I, you know, just trying to be out there in the streets, um, helping everybody around the world, um, but helping policy at the same time. So I would say like the head of some top tier, let's just say high intelligence agency of some sort. Um, yeah, no specific title, but something that like influences global change but also incorporates the traveling and meeting new people. I love a good story. I love a good listening to people um, and how they've overcome or try to make do with what they have. So, yeah. 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 You want to be that important lady. That's, that's what it sounds like. The boss. (laughs) You are the boss. (laughs) Incredible. So thank you so much for your answers. I hope our audience enjoys them as much as we do, but Thank you as well so much for being here and for having this conversation with us today. And for everyone at home, thank you so much for listening to Can You Hear Us? Um, My name is Monica. And my name is Madeira, and we will see you next time. Bye. We would like to thank our guests, Beatriz Cantada and Natalie Petit, again for coming on today, as well as the LSE's Department of International Development for all its support, especially the LSE ID Communications and Event Manager, Ms. Deepa Patel, for all her help in promoting and distributing the episodes. Finally, to our team for researching, recording, and editing this episode. Our music is provided by a sandbank and our logo created by Gorkalat. See you all next time. Bye!